Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. They saw the living word. They saw the miracles of Jesus, and and his works, as I shared, were sufficient to convince and comfort John, but he didn't work for these people. Now, these three cities mentioned here, none of them exist today. They are ruins. They were devastated. They were destroyed. Why? Jesus said they would be. In part two of Pastor Sam's message, A Friend of Sinners, Sam is back in Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Pastor Sam is using this text to help us understand why we can consider Jesus a friend and how the process of repentance is so important in that relationship. Let's listen in. We know Jesus loves sinners because that's evident throughout Scripture. Jesus loves and is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But but note this, he will judge the unrepentant and that's why he brings it up. He says he began to upbraid these cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now the cities that he mentions here, and there are three, they sort of formed the nucleus around Capernaum, his headquarters, during the time of his Galilean ministry. And so what happens is that they had seen the miracles that Jesus was working. Now, we saw just a week or two ago, John the Baptist, a time of confusion, depression, he's in prison, he's starting to have some doubts, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Jesus says, go back and tell them what you see. And we saw this earlier in the chapter. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now that was enough to comfort and console John the Baptist in prison. And it should have been enough to convict and convert those who were, well, and there were many, observing the miracles and yet attributing even those miracles to demonic activity. You see, they didn't just say of John, he must be demon-possessed. Look how he lives. Look what he eats. Look how he acts. Listen to what he's saying. No, they accused Jesus of working by the power of Satan. By the way, that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing to God's work, or taking God's work and attributing that to Satan. Well, in any case, at this point, he begins to pronounce woes. And and this is a word you really don't want the Lord speaking to you. See, woe to you. You don't want to hear it. It's sort of on a line of depart from me. You don't want to hear it. So woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, this speaks of their responsibility. They saw so much, they heard so much, they experienced so much. And I was thinking that, well, we're sort of like that in America today. Over 90% of Americans claim to be some form of Christians, 
But when they poll them about actually reading the Bible or knowing anything from the Bible or even knowing what John 3.16 is, multitudes are oblivious. Well, here's the thing. We've got the Bible. I don't know if you're aware, there are still countries around the world where it's legal and, you know, punishable to have a Bible. I met a missionary only last year who had spent years and years behind the Iron Curtain and, and uh, she was in one of those towns. You hear these stories? True stories where, where they were arresting people, imprisoning people just for having Bibles. Her father had been a pastor. They took a Bible and they took every page out of it and passed it out and throughout the town. So everyone had one page of the Bible to memorize. And they would get together and they would whisper the word of God to one another because to publicly proclaim it or read it out loud, you did so under peril of, of imprisonment or even death. And we're living in that kind of world. And here we have it. You know, the Bible's still a bestseller worldwide. Is that amazing? With all the Bibles that are given away, and we've given thousands, just our little church, thousands of Bibles over the years. But with all that are given away, the, all the ones that the Gideons put in hotel rooms, people are still just buying them, buying them, and buying them. But the question is, are we reading them? <laughs> and then are we obeying them? Not how many do we have, but are they doing us any good? Well, with knowledge, with privilege comes responsibility. And, and when I read this, I realize, of course, God holds me to a higher standard. Why? I spend more time in the Word of God than most people. And He holds you to a higher standard than maybe some. Why? Because you're in a church where the Word is being taught. If you come every week, you're going to study all of Matthew. If you come for a few years, you're going to study all the New Testament. If you come on Wednesday night, you're going to go through the entire Old Testament. All the way through. And so... Now, I'm not trying to discourage you from coming because some of you, the wheels are turning, thinking, wait a minute, if I don't come, I won't know. And if I don't know, I won't be responsible. Well, that might be true. But listen, ignorance isn't bliss when it comes to spiritual, eternal things. So if your mind works that way, and you can see that's how my mind works, I really needed to be saved. It's like, even as a pastor, I still think that way. And so, well, here's the deal then. You want to make sure you're in the word and obedient to the word because you have great, great privilege what a wonderful time in history for us personally. We have it in print. We have it on computer. We have it on MP3 so we can get on our bike and listen to it in our discman. We have the Word of God readily and, and very inexpensively available. And there's no reason we shouldn't be in it more. Well, they saw the living Word. They saw the miracles of Jesus. And, and His works, as I shared, were sufficient to convince and comfort John, but he didn't work for these people. Now, these three cities mentioned here, none of them exist today. They are ruins. They were devastated. They were destroyed. Why? Jesus said they would be. And I'm thinking if he says, it would have been better to be in Sodom or Sodom would be better off than, Sodom was a pretty bad place. And, and he's saying it's worse because of such great light and and Capernaum, because he walked the light of the world in their midst, and they rejected the testimony of, of his witness to them. There's one more thing, and then we move on to the third of the four that we consider together this morning. You know, some people, they have this thing where they're like, well, you know what, what about the person that never heard? Okay, I understand the one who's got knowledge, God holds them accountable. What about the person who never heard? And some of you legitimately pondered that, been troubled by it. Maybe people ask you. And here's the way it works. 
Say there's someone in the middle of nowhere. They're an idol maker. Their dad was an idol maker. Their grandpa was an idol maker. Their great grandpa was an idol maker. So for generations and generations and generations, idol makers. And one day that guy is sitting there and he's looking at this little idol who his whole people worship, the idols they make. And he looks at it and he thinks, you know, I made you, you didn't make me. And he thinks, if, if you don't exist unless I make you, I couldn't exist unless someone made me. I wonder who made me. You know, the Bible says if a man searches for the Lord with all his heart, he'll find him. So in the middle of nowhere, with no Christian witness, with no missionary, with, with, with no Bible, someone could look up at the stars and say, you know, somebody had to have made them. And it had to be somebody bigger than all this in order to make this. Who are you? Where are you? What are you? Reveal yourself to me. Do you know the Bible promises that God will reveal himself to them? Now, how will he do it? If you talk to missionaries, they'll say, I got to go. You got to support me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. The reason to support missionaries, though, isn't because we're afraid somebody might not hear, but because Jesus said to go and to send. And we want to be a part of that work, but not out of guilt or fear, but out of opportunity and a desire to be a part of the missions movement of our generation to get the word out. But listen, when God wanted to talk to Moses, he didn't send Aaron. He talked to him through a burning bush. When God wanted to talk to Balaam, Balaam wasn't listening. He spoke to him right through the donkey that Balaam had been riding. And he's spoken through a lot of donkeys since, some would say. And, but the bottom line is, Jesus can reach and will reach people. And if anyone's reaching out for God, you've got to know God is initiated. Do you know the Bible says that, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament is handiwork. There is nowhere where their witness isn't seen and heard. Creation says there's a creator. But we can't learn from creation that the Father is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient and kind and, and, and all those things he is. And so we come to the third and that's Jesus celebrating the Father's wisdom. We've seen rejection in verses 16 through 19 and retribution or the promise of it in verses 20 through 24 of the unrepentant. Now there's a revelation. And Jesus says in verse 25, or Matthew writes, at that time Jesus answered and said, now quoting Jesus, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Son, Father, excuse me, except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What's he saying here? He's simply saying that the scholars of his day, the scoffing scholars and, and proud theologians of his day, they missed it entirely. They had a lot of Bible knowledge, but they never really understood what that knowledge was meant to produce in them. And that was a real relationship with the Father. Now, I already mentioned creation reveals the majesty and the power and the awesomeness of God. But Jesus reveals the tenderness, the care, the compassion, the mercy and the holiness and justice of God. You see, 
Jesus was the perfect representation of the Father. Hebrews says he was the exact or spitting image of his Father. Some of our kids look like us so much, people could see our kids and say, oh, I know your dad, I know who you are, because there's that much of a resemblance. But only Jesus ever looked that much like the Father. That someone could say, oh, I know your dad. I, I, I know your dad because I see him in you. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All you need to know about that one that we will someday stand before in glory, you can learn from reading through the Gospels, from examining the life of Jesus, from looking at the epistles and the things taught about Jesus, from looking at the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. So he simply says, Father, I thank you. What perfect wisdom. You've hidden this from those who were wise in their own eyes. 1 Corinthians describes those saying, not many noble, not many wise, not many mighty are called. But God has called the foolish things of this world. He's called the despised, the rejected. Why? That, that, that he might get the glory, that no flesh would glory in his presence. And so he says, hey, all things delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is incredibly important because we live again in a day and age where some deny that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You need to know the Bible, though it doesn't use the word Trinity. From Genesis to Revelation reveals that God is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says it's the Father's delight to introduce the Son. And it's the Spirit who, who really magnifies the Son. And, and then, hey, it's the Son who leads us to the Father. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, he says, but by me. And so the Father, in his perfect wisdom, passes by the rabbi, the theologian, the, the scholar, and he reveals himself to simple men and women, boys and girls, who walk by faith, who hear the word and respond to it. Well, finally we come to the fourth and, and concluding evidence of Jesus' love for sinners, his friendship toward sinners. Not only did he tell them the truth, not only did he warn them that with knowledge comes responsibility, not only did he celebrate the Father's perfect wisdom and doing things, well, this way, but, but then there's an invitation, and I want you to see it's an open invitation. One of my favorite words in Scripture appears here in verse 28. Come to me all. Come to me all. That word all, Giller, when my buddy's fond of asking the question, how many is all? It's all. It's an open invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' invitation here is to cease your labors, to lay down your burdens, and you do it simply by coming to him. If you're not a real believer in Jesus, and what I mean by a real believer would be a born-again believer, somebody who realizes that there's flesh and there's spirit, that I've been living as a natural man, natural woman in the flesh, 
And Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say you must be born again. Believing in Jesus isn't just intellectually appreciating who he is or even affirming who he is, but it's trusting in him, yielding your life to him. We call him Lord. He calls us friends, but we don't start the other way around. We don't call him friends and then say, let's buddy up with Jesus. No, we submit ourselves, humble ourselves and, and make him Lord. And then he treats us as family and as friends. But he says, come to me. It's so important because religion says join our church or join our sect or join. Well, no one says join our cult, but that really is what in essence is happening. And they're saying, connect with us and you'll find what? You'll find work because all man's religions are based in man's works. It's all about what we got to do to get right with him. But you see, the gospel doesn't say do, it says done. It's not what we're going to do for God, it's what God has done for us. Now, will there be works? Oh yeah, that, that follows in a moment. But we never want to get the cart before the horse. We want to make sure, and here's why, it's just really hard to make that whole thing go right. But um, we come to Him. While religion is basically about an outer reformation, a, a, a personal transformation. Real relationship with Jesus is about an inward transformation, uh, something that God does, does in us and based on something God's already done for us. So Jesus doesn't say, get religious or, you know, become this way or become that way. No, he says, come to me, cease your labors, lay down your burdens and come to me. Now his promise, rest, rest from the labor of works. Rest from the labor of law, of rules, of regulations, of requirements, and all the things that men put on others to say, if you'll do this, then you'll be acceptable. God says, no, believe in what I've done and you will be accepted. But he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest from your labors and rest from the burden you carry. Now, I'm certain that the burden he relates or he refers to is sin. And here's why. If you're an unbeliever, you have the burden of all of the sins you've ever committed on you. And it's a heavy weight to bear. People do all sorts of things to try to remove it or relieve it or get some, well, some rest from it. But nothing works. Why? It can only be removed by a sacrifice, the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. And, and so, if you're a believer, you need to know that sin is a heavy burden for you as well. And here's why. Once you've given your life to the Lord, you've been sealed with the Spirit, adopted into the family of God, you call the child of God, that will be a forever deal. But when you sin, because the wages of sin is death, and death means two things, separation, first of all, physical death, separation of the body and spirit. We learned that in James. Spiritual death is a separation of that person from God. And even believers can find themselves separated from God. Why? Sin separates. You understand this if you're married. Sin against your wife, even in the most minute way. Even if you didn't know you did it. And there is a separation. The fellowship's broken. The intimacy's not there. And until things are made right, you don't enjoy the relationship. Well, that's what happens with God. The moment I sin, the moment you sin, fellowship is broken. Now, that doesn't mean we're no longer children of God. No, we're His. 
We believe in him. We, he sealed us. But we want to get right right away. And here's why. Sin is a heavy burden. And the moment I sin and don't confess and don't repent, well, what am I doing? I'm justifying. I'm rationalizing. I'm blame shifting. And in the midst of that, I'm adding burden upon burden upon burden. I'm adding sin to sin. As I excuse my sin, it's a greater sin. As I, as I rationalize my sin, it's more sin. And I find myself carrying a burden that Jesus never intended me to bear. Hey, we're all going to fall. The, the question is, do we get up and say, Father, forgive Jesus, thank you, and, and let's get back on the right road. So in any case, Jesus says, here's the solution to all of this. The open invitation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not only coming to him, though, but yoking with him. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. A yoke was just something that they used back in the day to put a couple oxen together so they could plow the field and yoke together. Those oxen are going to go the same direction. Now, there was always a lead oxen and there was always one that was going to follow along. And when we yoke together with Jesus, and it's a beautiful picture, we find ourselves walking in step with him. No longer doing our thing, always doing his thing. He's going this way. Well, we don't have any other choice. Why? We are yoked together with him. That's where I want to be. That's how I want to live. I want to know that I'm connected to and can't be separated from him. You know, it's a lot harder to sin if we could get a picture that we were actually yoked with him. You know how we have these images? Jesus lives in my heart. Little children say that. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's in heaven. Where else? Oh, he's in my heart. It's so cute. And it's, and it's true. You know, Jesus, hey, he comes into the hearts of children who open their hearts to him. But, but the point is, it, it, it's sort of still philosophical to us. Yes, Jesus is with us. If we could see ourselves yoked with him, it would be impossible for us to go to that party or tell that joke or listen to that joke or do that thing or watch that stuff. Why? Because we realize there's no way for my eyes to see something his eyes aren't seeing. There's no way for my hands to touch something his hands won't get. We're dragging him into it, you see. And I just want to be yoked with him and I want to be going the way he's going and, and that's my prayer and my hope for you. Partnering with him, serving alongside of him, not working for God, working with God. It's a wonderful picture. Why? Because you know he's going to bear the bulk of the load. That's why he says his yoke is easy. His burden, light. Man, when I'm connected to him, my work is really him working and, and so I take joy in it. And delight in what he's given me to do, coming to him, yoking with him, learning from him, and then becoming like him. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or meek and humble. You want to be less stressed, more blessed? Just become a more humble person. Now, I don't mean that kind of humility where people see something good in you and look, oh, really, that's not me, it's not me, it's all the Lord. There's a false humility that's worse than pride because it's just, well, it is pride, so it probably isn't worse than pride. But, but real humility just honestly evaluates who and what we are. What does Paul say? Apart from him, nothing. But in him, all things. I do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And so come to him if you haven't. 
Yoke with him if you're not. Learn from him. And here's the ultimate. By doing so, we will become more like him. It will be impossible for anything else to happen. We're going to be going the way he's going. We're going to be observing what he's doing. We're going to be useful to him, fruitful for him. And in the process, we become more and more like him. So today, listen, if you go home and you don't remember anything else, remember this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus, a friend of sinners. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think of that verse through the lens of being yoked to Jesus. These good works that we will walk in, when we are yoked with Jesus, we not only will have a guide of where, how, and when to walk, but also the effort, strength, and power to do them will come from Him to whom we are yoked. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.